I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of Valley and today's guest we've had on the past before, and I brought him back. That's Jordan Peterson. Except this setting is slightly different. It's in front of 8,000 people that we sit down and talk about some interesting topics that got him emotional multiple times. Some of it has to do with money, some of it has to do with politics, some of it has to do with family, but you will definitely be amazed by Jordan Peterson's answers in today's sit-down. Before we get into it, obviously a lot of people know uh, because they've read about you or watched you in different places, 12 rules you have. Your rule number one is stand up straight with your shoulders straight. Number two is treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. Three is befriend people who want the best for you. Four is compare yourself to who you were yesterday not the useless person you are today. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Set your house in order before you criticize the world. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is uh, expedient. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. That's number eight. Assume the person you're listening to knows something you don't. Be precise in your speech. Do not bother children while they're skateboarding. And last but not least, pet a cat when you encounter one in the street. I heard somewhere you said it was 40 rules and you narrowed it down to 12. It so, was originally 42 and I'm working on another set of 12. So what was the cutoff? Like what was number 13 that missed out? Was it, was it like a battle for number, th- I'm curious to know what number 13 was for you. Well, um, I, I tried to pick a set that would make a uh, coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like the rules differed in quality particularly. I think they were all worth writing about, but when you write a book, you want it to have a certain internal consistency, and so I went for that. A um, couple of the rules that didn't make it were um, uh, be careful who you share good news with. That's a good one, because you want to share good news with people who are going to be genuinely happy for you, and that's one way that you can identify those people who are wow. clearly on your side. Wow. Um, there's a that's powerful. There was a corollary to that, which was be careful who you share bad news with, because that's equally tricky. You know, you, you, you want someone who will listen to you when you're having trouble and allow you your grief, uh, especially if it's a consequence of something tragic and who won't try to one-up you, you know, because often when you're talking to people, they'll be thinking about what they have to say that's worse and that's not helpful if you need a listening ear. Um, make one room in your house as beautiful as possible. That's, that's what I'm writing about now. Um, I, I talked a lot about already about the necessity of cleaning your room, which is, you know, a, in some sense a foolish piece of advice because it seems so obvious, but it's not obvious at all. And you'll find if you try it, especially if you're in a household that's not very functional, that you'll encounter obstacles that you couldn't imagine existed while you're trying to put your life in order. And you can take your surroundings beyond order and, and, and move towards beauty, and that's unbelievably useful because while beauty calls people to their higher being, I would say, and to make friends with beauty is to introduce yourself in introduce yourself very carefully to one of the mysteries of life that make it worth living. And so those are a few of the rules that didn't make the original cut, but that 
I'm still working on and still thinking about. I'm definitely looking forward to reading the next book that you come out with. Those were very interesting rules. Appreciate you for sharing it with us. Thank you for sharing it with us. So, so you know, there, there's, this saying, there's this saying that says, tough times produce strong men, strong men produce good times, good times produce weak men, weak men produce tough times. Yes. If that's the truth, which phase are we in today? Well, if you think about it historically, you have to say that we're in good times. I mean, that doesn't mean everything about the current times are good, and of course, life is always tenuous and, and, and difficult, but it's 1919. If you go back 100 years ago, imagine what the last five years would have been like, right? You would have been, the entire world was encapsulated in a terrible war. The trench warfare was absolutely brutal, and that was a five-year period, and then that was followed by the Spanish influenza, which killed 120 million people. And, you know, so I'd rather be here now than there then by a substantial margin. And um, I think life is never easy, uh, even under relatively positive conditions. But um, I would say that it's very difficult to make the case that we're not in good times. And I especially think that's true if you look at the world globally. Um, the American working class, and maybe the Western working class in general, paid a very large price for enriching the rest of the world. You know, I mean, China's come up in a miraculous way in the last 40 years, mm -hmm. South Korea, India, yep. well, the entire, in all of Southeast Asia, and increasingly Africa too, because the fastest growing economies in the world are now in Sub-Saharan Africa. And that's produced a tremendous competition for working class people in the West, but speaking on a global level, there's never been a better time for the majority of people to be alive. And the future, although we're vulnerable and terrible things can always happen to us, it's hard to make a case that the future doesn't look comparatively positive. We're becoming extremely technologically um, sophisticated and the world is changing at an incredibly rapid rate and the only way we're going to be able to manage that in a positive way is if each of us, or as many of us as possible, are capable of making wise and careful and truthful decisions. And if we do that, then, you know, maybe things can continue to improve. Um, the rate of absolute poverty in the world has fell, fell by 50% between the year 2000 and the year 2012. You know, that's the fastest rate of economic improvement in the history of the world. And, and um, there's plenty of reason to be optimistic um, if you're inclined in that direction. Uh, I would say it's best to marry that with a healthy dose of attentive caution because, well, as I said, things can go badly wrong, but um, I can't think of a time in the past that I would trade for now, despite all the problems that are also part and parcel of being alive now. So, so do you think these good times will produce weak men or you don't buy that? You think in any times we're going to have weak, strong people being produced? Well, I think, I think there is a certain danger in, um, in luxury. You know, um, we don't know how necessary a certain degree of privation is to motivation. You know, the typical first-generation immigrant story is mm. someone arrives with nothing and is... is 
motivated fully to do whatever, whatever is necessary to make either themselves or their children a success. And that does seem to uh, decline. That motivation does seem to decline somewhat over the following generations. So, for example, Asian immigrants, um, their children outperform American children in school by a substantial margin, but that disappears by about three generations, that advantage. Wow, that disappears in three generations. Yeah, yeah. As the, as the Asian immigrants become more Americanized, their proclivity to um, excel you academically. You guys understand that concept? Powerful. So I come first generation, I'm more disciplined. My kid becomes less disciplined. My grandkids become less disciplined. And the one prior to that, you know, past that also gets less disciplined. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, and you probably face this to some degree because, you know, you have a lot of resources at your command. It's very difficult to provide your children with optimal um, privation in order to make, them, to make them stand on their own two feet. You know, and you, you, you don't get people to stand up on their own two feet and to adopt responsibility if everything is given to them. And that, that's, that's a real conundrum. Well, it's a real conundrum as you become successful because you're in a situation where if your children ask you for something, there's no formal reason for you to say no, you know, because you can provide whatever is being requested. But by doing that, you steal from them the opportunity to generate that for themselves. And that's, I suppose, one of the dangers of well, it's the, one of the dangers of prosperity. What that does to people over the long run, I don't think we understand well yet because most people haven't been prosperous for very long, right? There's been plenty of privation to go around and of course there still is in many, many parts of the world, including in the United States and in the West. Do, do you think we're getting softer and more sensitive? Do you think in, in general, especially America, because America has been successful now for quite some time, we're constantly growing, do you think we are becoming softer and more sensitive? Well, I think there's a push in that direction. Uh, like a, there certainly seems to be a technical push in that direction Why do you in think? the universities. Why? Well, it's complicated. You know, my like generally when I try to assess something like that, there's a rule if you're a social scientist, and the first rule is, in some sense, to look at context before you look at personality. And I think. There's been a lot of really radical changes in our society in the last 50 years, and we don't understand their consequences. The most radical change is probably the birth control pill, um, because it's provided women with voluntary control over the reproductive function, and that's a equivalent to a, a major biological mutation, right? It's, 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 its consequence is virtually incomprehensible. I mean, partly one of the consequences is, is you know, where, you, where reliable birth control is provided to women, first of all, they immediately become educated. Second, their economies tend to grow. And third, the birth rate falls below replacement. And then all three of those factors are monumental, you know. So um, perhaps especially the third, the falling of the birth rate be below replacement, which is the case in virtually every country in the Western world except the United States, um, softness, 
Well, look, like, we don't know exactly what the optimal conditions are under which you toughen up, let's say. Um, most children now have older parents, right, because people aren't having children until they're in their 30s. And there's a big difference between having a parent who's in his or her 30s and having a parent who's in her, his or her point. 20s. Yep. The 20-year-olds are still kind of like kids, and they're going to be more usefully neglectful, I would say. Well, look, one, one of the things we used to do with my daughter when she was very little was, you know, when she was about a year and a half, is we'd, we'd have her in a room alone, and she would usually complain about that for a few minutes, and then she'd find a way to amuse herself, you know. She, she liked to take books out of shelves and put them back in, and like, if, if you let her be, get through that initial bit of misery, then she would learn how to regulate herself, and, and she got very good at that. Um, and then, so that's a good example of minor privation having a positive influence. But, you know, children used to have multiple siblings, and siblings toughen you up because there's tremendous competition in families among siblings, and they had younger parents who had fewer resources. And, you know, now parents are older, first of all, and second, they're more resource-rich, and so they're more likely to schedule their children to death, in some sense, to provide them with all the opportunities that they feel would be useful, and that's understandable. And plus, because they have fewer children, each child is, in some sense, more precious. You know, not like if you have 10 children, you don't love all of them, but, you know, there's 10 of them. There's, there's only so much excess attention that can go around, and they do a, a lot of socializing each other rather than being socialized by parents. But if you only have one child, you know, you're going to devote all your resources to providing them with absolutely everything you can provide them with, and one of the dangers of that is that you'll overprotect them and you'll provide them with too much. And we don't understand those dynamics, right? We, we don't understand how much you should stay hands off your kids and let them go out there and make their own mistakes and, and find their own way. And, and that's, that's, well, that's tricky and, and we're ignorant about it. And so I think one of the consequences of that is that we do have a reasonable percentage of young people, maybe young adolescents, the kind that you hear about at university, who have been overprotected and overscheduled and under-challenged in some sense. We extend that overprotection far longer than is helpful. Um, you know, it's hard though because, as I said, when you have resources, you can use them to make your children's lives, let's say, easier. But the question is, like, do you really want to make the life of someone you love easier? And that's an incredibly difficult question. And it's tough because how do you, you know, the whole thing is when your kids go, kids' friends go and say, hey, I heard your mommy and daddy are rich. Why isn't your mom buying you this car? Why isn't your dad buying you this car? But it, 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 was your underlying message you encouraging us? Because there's a lot of Latinos in the room here. Were you trying to encourage us to go out there and have 10 babies? Is that, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> that kind of, you know, you're talking, they will make 10 babies in a heartbeat if you say that. These are professionals that are making babies here. <clears throat> well, my, you know, my wife and I had two kids, and um, we didn't start late compared to most of the people we knew. I think, I think our first child was born when my wife was 29. Um, we certainly felt that we would have had more children if we would have started earlier, 
um, there's no doubt that, and this is a very important thing to know, you know, there's not that many things in your life that are of central importance. There's half a dozen, I would say. Um, there's your friends, there's your family, your intimate partner. Um, by family, I mean your siblings and your parents, but then there's your children, there's your career, there's your educational trajectory, there's how you take care of yourself and protect yourself from temptation and what sort of useful things you do in the time that you're not working, but you know, children are a third of life, something like that, maybe more, and so I would certainly recommend that um, you don't miss it. Um, it's complicated because, of course, now in most situations, both parents have to work, and, um, but it's always been complicated to raise children. They, they take a, they're a long-term investment, but yeah, right, which is hard, which why it's hard, hard to even pay childcare workers, right, because the, the payoff for having a child doesn't occur until two decades later, or sometimes, sometimes four decades later. Um, but it's not something you want to miss, that's for sure, because it's, it's, well, that's life, you know. There's, it, it's, it's part of the human condition, and, um, and little children pay you back immensely if you have a good relationship with them, you know, if you're on their side and encourage them because they're an unconditional source of joy and love. Powerful. You know, the, the, the other thing I noticed that, that, you sh that, that you should all know is that um, as you get older, your family, the family you've produced, becomes more and more important. You know, so we teach young women in particular that the fundamental goal of their life is going to be their career. And, you know, first of all, most people don't have careers, they have jobs, and those are very different things. But you're, you're not a very happy camper, so to speak, if you're 45 and you have no one, and it doesn't go upwards after that. So don't miss it. So Jordan, follow up to that. I got a question for you. Very good point. Follow up to that with you is, you know, we're going to have President Bush here speaking in the next two days. I don't know when he's speaking in the next two days, but he's speaking. I can't say because Secret Service told me I can't give the specific time. Everyone's trying to figure it out. I almost gave you the time. Huh? Some of you guys were waiting for that. But, you know, why is it that so many uh, 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 powerful political families send their kids off to boarding school? And I don't know, as a clinical psychologist, how much research or how much of that are you, have you looked at with the link to boarding school teaches independence, toughens them up a little bit, the whole opportunity to have your kids have a little bit more challenging times for them to go through. What are your thoughts on boarding school? Well, I, I don't think that there's any evidence that, there's not a lot of evidence that school quality per se is a determining factor in 
the outcome of educational processes, that actually seems to be a situation. I mean, there are exceptions, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to say that every school is equal, but um, a tremendous amount of what determines whether or not a child is successful at school is their intelligence. I mean, you people all went to high school, to junior high school. I mean, you know that in a group of 30 kids, there's some kids that are so bright that they figure everything out in the first 15 seconds, and there are other kids who just can't get it no matter how hard they try. And that's one of the really catastrophic um, and built-in inequalities in the world, um, generally in boarding schools, because wealth and intelligence tend to be correlated. Um, which is also something you'd expect, right? You'd expect more intelligent people to be able to make more money, um, or you'd certainly at least expect less intelligent people to be able to make less money. Um, the schools are generally of... The schools generally produce good outcomes, but it's not obvious that it's because of the schools. Um, for even... And this, this is true at higher levels of education, too, to a degree that people don't really realize. So, for example, um, at, a, at a university like Harvard, any of the Ivy Leagues, it's very, very difficult to get in, right? So there's far more applicants than there are positions, and they use the, L, the um, um, SAT as one of the entry criteria. Um, so you have to have a very high SAT score, and then generally you have to be good at at least one or two other things to be considered. And a very large percentage, for example, of Harvard undergraduates, and there's only about four, 4,000 of them, so it's, it's a rather small school, um, were valedictorians of their class. And they have very high SAT scores, and the SAT is a proxy for IQ. Um, the people who administer the SAT don't like to admit that, but there's absolutely no doubt that it's the case, because any set of questions that assess general knowledge and problem-solving ability, can, you can derive an IQ score from. And so part of the advantage of hiring an Ivy League graduate isn't the fact that they went to a high-quality school, it's the fact that it was impossible to get in. And so the screening has been done for the employee, for the employer, by the admissions process at the school. And the same thing is true of business schools, and the, business, the people who run business schools know that, is that the primary... Um, value that they offer, and again, this is not the case with every business school, is the fact that if you hire an MBA from their program, and it's a very selective program, then you have a very high probability of hiring someone who's intrinsically intelligent and, and conscientious, and that's a great predictor. Those are great predictors of long-term success. So, and what would you expect in a society that's essentially meritocratic? It's, it's pretty straightforward to think this through. Not only should people who are faster and smarter be more productive, especially if they're hardworking, but that's really what you'd want, isn't it? I mean, how the hell do you want to set up your society? You want to set up your society so that incompetent people who do nothing succeed? That, that, first of all, that can't happen. So... You know, and I, I, I should say... I should say that I'm very aware of the unfairness of a meritocratic society, of its intrinsic unfairness. So let me give you an example. Um, I, I had someone write me the other day. Uh, um, he had listened to some of my lectures on IQ, and he sent me his IQ scores. And he was in the fifth percentile. 
which basically meant that 95% of the people around him were faster cognitively than he was. And, you know, the, the letter had, it wasn't very grammatically correct and it wasn't very well written, although it was very sad. And, and he said that he had a very difficult time finding a job and keeping one, that he was constantly frustrated and, 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 and unnerved. And that's a terrible thing, you know, um, because it's, it's not as if it's his fault. A, a lot of what constitutes your innate cognitive ability or your cognitive ability is something that's really granted to you by, by fortune and fate. And I mean, you can make someone stupider, um, but it's very difficult to make someone smarter, although hard work definitely is a plus. People stack up at the bottom and it's not easy to figure out how to deal with that, but because you need the people who are leading the cognitive revolutions to develop entrepreneurial enterprises and to run things properly and to invent the new things that we all use and hopefully to raise the living standards of society in general. So do you think, uh, you said it's, it's, it's easier to make people stupider, that's what you said. It's easier to make people stupider? Oh, definitely. Oh. Well, you can do that by depriving, of them, depriving them of nutrition when they're children. I mean, one of the things we know, and, and this is from um, Bjorn Lomberg's work, I, I, which I would really recommend, Lomberg has put together a team of economists to rank order problems in the world by return on investment in, in solving them. So you imagine, you know, maybe there's a hundred problems that beset the world, from starvation to, to lack of water, to lack of sanitary facilities, to lack of education, to tyrannical governance, to, well, you, you, can, you can continue the list in your own imagination. Um, what Lomberg did was consult very high-level economists who he put in teams to find out where you get the biggest return for your foreign policy dollar um, over you know, a reasonable stretch of time. And, and it's clearly the case that if you invest in early childhood nutrition, that, that pays off at about 250 to 1. And so one of the ways that you can impair children's intelligence permanently is by ensuring that they don't have enough to eat when they're very young. And that's actually something that can be addressed very inexpensively, and it's to everyone's benefit. So, Purely so that's nutrition. one way you can make people... Oh, yes. I so mean, let me ask you this. Do you, think, uh, uh, do you think media makes us smarter or stupider? Um, I think it makes some people smarter and some people stupider. I mean... <laughs> Well, look at television. See, you've you got to kind of fragment, you got to kind of fragment the people that you're talking about into different groups, you know. It's like asking whether daycare is good for kids or not. And the answer is, if the daycare is better than your family, then daycare is good for you. You know, and I actually mean that technically because the studies of, of, of early childhood daycare indicate that for some kids it's, it's, it's perfectly fine and for other kids it's not. Uh, it's good if your kid is extroverted and, and ready to play with other children and, and so forth. There's a lot of individual differences that, that have to be taken into account. So, um, media in general, look, imagine that you're a little kid and you know, your parents are neglectful and you're in your crib most of the time but the television is on. Well, that's a hell of a lot better than just being in your crib, you know, and so it, it is pretty clear too, over the last century, on average, IQ levels have gone up by quite a substantial amount. And the reason for that seems to be that 
the very low end has been pushed up. And some of that's going to be a consequence of increased nutrition, and some of it's going to be a consequence of the fact that television is a lot better than nothing, like infinitely better. Now, whether television is better for you than you know, a diet of, of, of high-quality literature, that's a whole different question. Um, whether it's better for you than playing properly with your peers, uh, engaging in pretend play and all the other things that you have to do to establish yourself as a competent child, that's also um, another question. But um, generally speaking, I would say that the dispersion of the media technology we have has made us far more intelligent. And the, the other thing that's worth thinking about too is that computers also make us more intelligent, I would say, not because of the content, but because of the technology. You know, you gotta be pretty damn organized and sharp to keep your phone and your computer working. These are high, high maintenance gadgets. You know, and it actually annoys the hell out of me because, you know, I was sort of old enough so that computers came along. A lot of people my age aren't very good at using computers. And, and, and people who are older are, are even worse. I made a decision when the computers started to become omnipresent, and so that would have been about 1993, that I was going to spend a year, and that was the first year that I was teaching in Boston, pretty much doing nothing but figuring out how Intel 486s worked. And it meant there was a lot of other things that I had to put on hold, but I did become a competent computer user, and I was, I'm pretty fast. But, you know, my son, it's just annoying as hell to watch him on the computer and on the phone because, and my graduate students as well, because they're so much faster than me that it's not even funny, and I'm not really accustomed to being slower than someone else in the room. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it's... it's You know, the, the other thing you see, too, is that, I mean, uh, certainly I would say if my, my son and, and my daughter are both competent technology users, my, my son in particular, although my daughter has her, her, her shining spots, too, especially for use of social media, but, you know, if I had children now, the one thing I would bloody well make sure that they knew was how to use a computer, how to program, man, because if you're smart and you can use a computer, you are so much smarter than you are if you're just smart that it's not even funny. Mm. You know, and you talk to people, you Very see this in Silicon Valley all the time, you talk to people who are expert computer users, they are so bloody powerful, it is just beyond belief. So, and that, that's gonna do nothing but expand, right? Because Moore's Law is not dead and computers are doubling in power every 18 months. And, and so, and who the hell knows where that's going to go, so. Your kids, they should know everything they possibly can about how to spin a computer on their finger like a basketball player. So, Is that one of the reasons why you love Twitter so much? Well, <laughs> Twitter, yeah. <laughs> I, have, um, I have pulled back from Twitter almost entirely in the last four months, and I can't say that that's done me any psychological harm. Um, I, I've quit reading the comments. They you know the comments on Twitter are really 
kind of, they're, they're such an odd way of communicating because let's say you tweet something out and it goes out to, oh, who knows, I think I have a million Twitter followers, it's something like that. And I don't know how many of them read what I tweet, but let's say 10,000 or something, it's just a guess. Who, who comments? It's not like it's a random sample. You know, like if I just pointed to 50 people in the audience randomly and asked for an opinion about something, I'd kind of get a good sample of what the audience thought. But if I said, okay, who had an absolutely dreadful morning and is just as bitchy as can possibly be imagined? <laughs> okay, so what are all you people stand up, okay? And then I'll ask the most miserable of you for your opinion. That's kind of what Twitter's like. <laughs> You know, so it's, it's a form of pseudo-information. It's like you're communicating with people and, and you respond to it like you're communicating with people because, well, you're accustomed to communicating with people and so that's how you respond. But you don't know what the hell's going on with the person who's commenting. You don't know if they are even real, if they're hiding behind some false pseudonym or if they're trolling or, or like I said, if they just had an absolutely miserable day and need to you know, throw a dart at someone to alleviate some of their stress. So, and that's a problem with social media in general, all these new communication technologies that we've evolved. We, we really have no idea what they're doing to us. I mean, they're really, really hard on young women in, in particular, um, Facebook and, I mean, you think about it. You know, when I was a teenager, I mean, I, I did, God, if I had to write a book about the stupid things I did when I was a teenager, it'd be a very thick book. And it'd be a worse book if there were photographs accompanying it. Um, and, you know, but, but I had this advantage that young people today don't have, which was, well, when my day of stupidity was over, I could go home and it was not there. You know, like, it wasn't on Twitter, it wasn't on Facebook, um, there yeah. wasn't 20 of my friends communicating to me about, you know, what foolish thing I did at the party the night before. And, um, and young people now, they're just followed by paparazzi, essentially, constantly. And, and I've watched that with the young teenage daughters of many of my friends, because uh, my kids were a little too old for that to have actually have happened to them. But God, it's miserable. And um, we know that there is some relationship between the amount of time people use Facebook, for example, and their mental health, which means the more they use Facebook, the more depressed they are. And it might be that the depression is driving the Facebook use, but the causal pathway seems to be the other way around, which is, you know, it's just playing that unbelievably exposed social game. That's hard on people. And these aren't trivial technologies, you know? I mean, they're, they're, they're transforming the way we communicate with one another, and that's and they're, they're completely uncontrolled experiments. We have no idea what the medium or long-term consequences are going to be. And we'll never find out either because, of course, the communication landscape changes so quickly that by the time you get adapted to one communication technology, another one has come along that's even more confusing that you now have to master. And so, well, that's why it's necessary for everyone to develop their own modicum of wisdom, I believe, because I don't know how else we're going to be able to deal with this technological transformation that's going to come 
is already coming across us like a tidal wave. And, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. The, the people in Silicon Valley have plans that, well, that, that make you think that the whole place should probably be bombed just for the safety of the rest of us. You know, because there's, there's tremendous danger in that rapid acceleration of machine intelligence. And, and we have no, we have absolutely no idea where that's headed. So, and maybe it'll be great. It's, it's possible that it'll be great. But power cuts both ways. So hopefully we can, we can control it with our wisdom. And that's pretty much up to each of you to put your lives together so you can make good decisions. So let me, let me ask you this question. This is more for myself. This is uh, maybe the audience here can process it any way they want. You know, we started a company uh, uh, based on a vision of capitalism. And I promised myself I'm going to be talking about this for the rest of my life on me coming here from Iran and understanding how this system works and why so many immigrants come here. So I said, for the rest of our careers, we're going to be talking about this. And we're multicultural. We've got a lot of different nationalities. And, and that's 54% Latino. I think the second largest uh, population in this room is probably African-American. And then it's going to be Caucasian. And then it's going to be, I can't left, let out my, uh, my Filipino community that we have here as well. And then we got a handful of Middle Easterns here as well, a few hundred Middle Easterns. But here's my question for you. Here's my, and by the way, I want everybody to hear. I, I actually don't have a clue what he's going to say, but I'm very curious. I don't so have a clue what for, I'm going to say either. <laughs> for me, over the years, I like to ask birthdays, when your birthdays, to me, just, and I've stored in my mind. I said, boom, is there any kind of correlation between these nine? And it's not even horoscope. It's just purely a date to me. It's not like, oh, you're Libra, you're this. I go through dates, right? And then the next thing I do when I start asking people questions is if they like math or they don't like math. So uh, one time we're sitting there, we're having a debate politically about uh, capitalism and economy and how money works and all this other stuff. And this one person was absolutely against capitalism, okay? It's like, oh my gosh, this whole capitalism stuff, it's, you know, who cares about the money and who cares about this? And I said, let me ask you a question. Were you, were you somebody that liked math growing up? I hated math. I said, interesting. Okay. Very interesting that you hated math. Do you think some of us are born with liberal wiring and some of us are born with conservative wiring? So it's 40-40. So I've got three kids and they're all different. From day one, they've all been different, yeah. right? 40-40. And then there's a 20% in the middle that's kind of trying to figure out, let me see which argument makes more sense. Okay, this makes sense. Okay, cool. I, I think this makes sense because it seems like some people, no matter what you say, they're just not going to change. And there's no way in the world if 45%, whatever the numbers are, Democrats, and 45% are Republicans, let's just say you put that number there, you can't say both sides are idiots because one side says the other side are idiots, the other side says the other sides are idiots. It's just, you can't sit there and think that. It just doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah, well, they're so, both right some of the time. Right, so they're both right some of the time. But do you think some of the belief system that we have politically, liberal or conserv conservative, we're born with? Oh, yes. You, th you do think that? Oh, I think the evidence for that is Tell us clear. more. Tell us why you say well, that. Well, okay, so there have been good personality studies done for, I would say, about 30 years. Um, and the reason for that is that we figured out a personality model about 30 years ago um, that's stable cross-culturally, and it was mostly derived st statistically. And it required a fair bit of computational power to derive. And basically, the way that it was derived was that thousands of people were asked 
hundreds and hundreds of questions. And then computers could figure out how the answers grouped. So if you were likely to say yes to question A and also to question J, um, maybe that was a tendency across a large group of people and so you could assume that there was something similar about question A and J and you could sort the questions into groups. And it turns out that questions about personality sort into five groups. Um, and there's some argument about exactly the right number, but it doesn't matter. It's somewhere between five and seven, and you can break the five down into ten, but whatever, we've got a pretty good overall descriptive structure, like the periodic table of the elements for personality. And if you're an extrovert, man, it's like you want to be where the action is. You want to be where the party is. You're, you're telling jokes and you're setting up social occasions and, and you smile a lot and you talk a lot and you want people around you all the time. And a tremendous amount of that is influenced genetically. And you can tell that if you have children because your children are like that from like day no one. No doubt about you know? it, yeah. My son's quite extroverted. Um, well, my daughter is as well, but, you know, he was a flirt when he was nine months old. Mm. It was ridiculous. Well, it was ridiculous. My wife used to pack him along on her back on one of those little, and I would do the same thing, on one of those little, uh, you know, those little baby carriers. And I can remember one time we were on a cruise ship, um, just taking a small cruise from Maine to, to Nova Scotia, and we got on the, on, the, on the boat, and we were wandering through a group of people, and it was like, it was like being with a rock star because he was sitting in the back of the little, little baby holder smiling away, you know, like flirting like mad and waving at everyone. And, and that, that was there right at nine months. And so people differ in extroversion and that's positive emotion. They differ in neuroticism and that's negative emotion. Some people are much more sensitive to depression and grief and anxiety. Their threshold for threat is a lot lower. Some people are agreeable rather than disagreeable. And agreeable people are very empathic and self-sacrificing. And the empathic part is good because, you know, it's useful to be empathic, especially if you're caring for people who are in real trouble. But the self-sacrificing isn't so good. That can make you resentful and, and also... Um, decrease the probability that you're going to be successful in your salary negotiations and so forth. So those of you who are agreeable and have a hard time standing up for yourself and fighting, you know, you'll fight for other people but not for yourself, it's a very good skill to develop that ability to watch your resentment and see what you need and then make a case for it. It's a hard thing to learn. People differ in conscientiousness, that's orderliness and industrious, and they differ in creativity, which is openness. And so and a lot of that's genetic. It's there to begin with. Now, you can move that with the environment, you know, but, but you know, you have a character. It's there. Liberals are higher in openness, that's trait creativity, and lower in conscientiousness, especially orderliness. And that seems to be because they believe, or they're, they're, they're let's say, their niche is an informational niche. They believe that the free flow of information is worth the risk. So that'd be the free flow of people across borders, the free flow of ideas across borders, the, the free flow of concepts across categories. They'd rather that the borders were permeable. Now the conservatives are low in openness and high in conscientiousness, especially orderliness, and they take the opposite tack. They think, well, yeah, there's danger in too much 
openness. There's danger in borders that are too permeable. Things can change too fast. Entire societies can become destabilized, and everyone can end up not knowing which way is up. And the, the thing is, is that both of those attitudes are correct. It depends on the time, because sometimes. You know, sometimes things are changing so fast that everybody's knocked off their feet, and and things are falling apart. And sometimes things things are so rigid that there isn't any new water flowing, and and everything's ground to a halt. You see that in corporations very often,、um, where they get ossified, you know, and and there's no new ideas, and then they collapse. You know, the average Fortune 500 company only lasts, I think, now it's only 24 years. And, and the duration of their、um, occupation of the top Fortune 500 space is getting shorter and shorter every year. You need liberals because now and then the right thing to do is to come up with something new, and you need conservatives because now and then the right thing to do is to do what everybody has always done. And the reason you need political dialogue is so that the liberals and the conservatives can continue、wow. to argue about which of those、Shh. solutions is appropriate right now. And the That's powerful, Jordan. And that's a unifying message, by the way. That's a unifying message that you're not hearing. Yes. It, it, today, it's not a unifying message that we need each other. Today, it's more we're smart, you're dumb, and you have no clue what you're talking about, and you're trying to take advantage. Yeah, of yeah. Versus, no, hey,、really、we a, need to kind of process. No, this it's thing really、together. a bad idea. You know, like it's a really bad idea because here's another example. So you know, Silicon Valley tends to be liberal. Every everyone knows that, and the reason for that is that there's a tremendous number of entrepreneurs there, and entrepreneurs tend to be high in openness and lower in conscientiousness. So they're creative, but they're also willing to break rules. You know, which you kind of have to do often.、Yep. Hopefully, not to a criminal extent, but you have to. Yeah, well, you know, it's tricky when you're trying to establish something new because look at a company like Uber. You know, they had to bend the rules to to be successful, and those companies that have Rented those scooters out and put them on the streets everywhere. You know, they just kind of went ahead and did it. It's not something an orderly person would do because they'd ask for permission. Whereas the people who started these scooter rental companies just said, "Well, what'll happen if we put them everywhere?" And the answer was that seemed to work. But you know, you have to have a rule-breaking proclivity in order to manage that. But the thing is, if you're an entrepreneur. You need conservative people because once you've figured out how to do something, and then you want to run it algorithmically, you know, you want to run it by the rules. Well, then it's the conservative types that are going to be really good at doing that and making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, and and show up for work on time and have stable marriages and be reliable. And their their problem is it's easy for them to get stuck in a rut. So so. It, 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 this is also Rule Nine, which is you know, attend to the person you're listening to as if they might know something you don't. It's like I really find it interesting to talk to people whose political opinions differ from mine, and for me, that's mostly meant talking to really、uh, strong conservatives because I would say temperamentally I tilt in the liberal direction, although being a social scientist has made me <clears throat> more conservative.、Um, It's very interesting to talk to people who don't share your political views if you listen to them, because they'll tell you all sorts of things about why they think that you just don't understand. And it's not that they're wrong; it's that sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right. And 
The, the whole point of free speech, as far as I can tell, the deep point of free speech is that, you know, it's all as if we're riding on the back of a giant snake and it, it's twisting and turning all the time and we're trying to figure out how to stay in the center so that we don't fall off the sides, you know? And sometimes it's time for a bit of a tilt to the left and sometimes it's a bit time for a bit of a tilt to the right. And the only way you can tell when that time is is by having a discussion about it. And it, so it's the discussion that keeps, the, that keeps us centered. It's not the fact that the conservatives are right or that the liberals are right. They're both necessary, annoying as that is. So, so, so let me ask you this, let me ask you this, to follow up on that. <clears throat> so is there, is there such a thing, because, so I sit there and I listen to somebody. I was at the Wayne Hughes house and Wayne Hughes had uh, uh, Bill Clinton's campaign manager and Wayne Hughes had George Bush's campaign manager, right? And it's only 40 of us, and this is like 10 years ago, and they're both debating on their argument. Both very convincing, okay? They're both very conv convincing and persuasive. Is there such a thing as 100% truth? Or is truth always adapting? Because if what you're saying is, it's opinions, listen to both opinions and see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense, versus is there something that I can look for that gets my argument and point to say, you know what, this is the accurate 100% truth, I'm gonna solve it based on this. Because in math, three times three is nine. I don't need a liberal, conservative, libertarian, conservative, you know, whoever it is to tell me, right? Three times three is math. Is there that as well to look at arguments and say this is the truth based on this or are we all having to still be a little bit nimble to see what both arguments are? Well, I would say two things about that. Is one is, I think there are times when you can establish truths. This is one of the reasons I like Bjorn Lomberg's work. He wrote a book called How to Spend $75 Billion to Make the World a Better Place. And what he did was put together these 10 teams of economists, and he had them rank order the problems in terms of return on investment, and then he averaged across their estimates and came up with a final list. You know, that, that's not a bad application mm. of the search for uh, objective truth in the political and social domain. So, and it's relatively apolitical, right? Because the economists he gathered represented a variety of different political beliefs. And, um, and so, so I think there are times when there are objective facts that present themselves in the political sphere, but most of the time political discussion is more it's more like marital negotiation, you know, and it's right, it's, it's right when it works in the world. That would be the first thing. Like, let's say you have a plan and you implement the plan and the plan turns out the way that you expected it to. It's a pragmatic definition of truth. Okay, that plan, flawed, no doubt it, that it was, imperfect, no doubt that it was, was accurate enough so that when you implemented it, it justified its own structure. And right. that's a lot of the way we judge truth in the world, right? Is you, you think you're right if you do something and it works. And that doesn't mean you're 100% right and it doesn't mean it's gonna work forever, but because you're ignorant and because your knowledge is limited, that's kind of what you've got. And so that's one form of truth. And then another form is, well, can we agree in a negotiated manner? Like, we kind of hope that if we're trying to solve a problem that we can talk until 
we come up with the least bad alternative that both of us can live with. But is that, that's not the truth though, we're compromising, right? It, maybe your idea is better than my idea, I'm not, you know what I'm saying? So let's just say your idea is better than my idea, but I'm better at convincing you than you are convincing me. That doesn't mean the best idea is being implemented, right? Oh, that happens all the time. There's lots of times well, when the best idea doesn't win. Right. You know, but that's partly why the fact that we're constrained by the world is helpful. I mean, what you want to do in politics. But you know what I'm saying? Like, what I'm trying to say is like, uh, so I want to know, is there a formula to get to the truth so then I can say, this is where I stand on this position? Or is it all about a lot of going back and forth and discord until I'm kind of like, okay, I kind of relate to this. 100% truth versus 70%, 80%. You, you, you know I, what I'm, think, what I'm asking? I think, I think 100% truths are very difficult to come by. That's where I'm going with you that. You know, okay. I mean, I've been trying to identify 100% truths, the 100% truths, let's say, that sit at the bottom of our societies. And one of the things that I believe to be true is that the idea that the individual is properly sovereign, I believe, is as true as any idea that human beings have ever come up with. I think that that idea works. Um, not everyone would agree with that. Um, the more complex the situation, the harder it is to extract out something approximating an objective truth. And, and, and so then so much of it depends on negotiation and discussion and, and agreement. Now, there, there are ways of, of addressing that as well. You know, one of the reasons that the United States works so nicely um, compared to many other countries is that, well, you have a plethora of states, and each of those states, in some sense, is an experiment. And all of the sub-structures of those mm -hmm. states are experiments. Sure. And, you know, you, because you have so many experiments going on, which is also one of the advantages of an open society, is you can kind of observe and see with all these solutions being generated, which ones seem to be efficient and effective. And so, one of the ways that you come up with truth from the political level is essentially through a Darwinian process. You know, if you really want to solve a complicated problem, maybe you try to solve it a hundred ways, and then you take the best solution. Got it. And look, this happens to entrepreneurs all the time too, you know, like most entrepreneurs, this is something to know, well, most entrepreneurs, most creative people fail at producing their creative product and monetizing it, right? So your default position, if you're a creative person, is you're gonna fail. And so, and that's because it's hard to come up with something new and it's, and it's hard to present it to the market at the right time and it's hard to market it. Like those things are really, really difficult. And so what successful entrepreneurs do is they just keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And eventually, if they're fortunate, one of their ideas happens to hit the right place at the right time. And so that's also Dar Darwinian in mm. some sense. You know, you're creating all these little enterprises that are sort of alive. They're, they're run by people after all. And even if your idea is good, that doesn't mean it will be successful. There's so many things that have to be taken into account. So this is partly why persistence and that's part of conscientiousness is so useful. It's like, you know, what do they say? If, if at first you fail, then try, try again. And, um, and that would probably mean try something different rather than the same thing. But persistence is helpful because it enables you to run many, many experiments. And, and you need to know that the baseline is failure. You know, it's important because otherwise you'll blame that on yourself. 
You know, and, and some of that's useful because there's probably some things that you could improve about yourself. But it's very difficult to go from zero to one. You know, it's very, if you're starting out as a salesperson, for example, the hardest sale is the first customer. And then, you know, they get easier with each additional customer. But so question, last question for you before we wrap up. Last question before we wrap up is, um, so say I see somebody in the room here, hypothetically, and I say, oh my gosh, I would love to, you know, have that kind of a life. I'd love to make that kind of money, right? And I compare myself to them, right? I'm saying, oh my gosh, what if one day I can be that person? What if one day I can have that life, right? How do I go from there to actually wanting to live it and become a reality versus not allowing envy and resentment pin me against them? Kind of like, you know, Cain wanted to be Abel, but he couldn't, so he goes and, you know, kills Abel. H how, do you, how do you manage that? Well, the first thing I think you need to understand is that these people that you're comparing yourself to, you don't really know very well, you know, and um, what that means is that you see their shiny outside, but you don't see the reality of their life. And so what you're... You know, maybe you're in California, see someone speeding down the road in a in a convertible Porsche and you think, oh man, what a lucky bastard. And um, the truth of the matter is that he's thinking about wrapping his expensive sports car around the next cement pillar that he comes close to. You know, you, you can't tell and people have hard lives and, and even people who are comparatively fortunate have hard lives. And so the, the ideal that you're observing that makes you jealous and resentful is in large part an illusion that's created by your own mind. And I... You know, I, I can give you just one example. Like I know a fair number of extremely wealthy people and um, most of them, most of the people I happen to know are people who've made them, their money themselves. And I tell you, man, they have a burden of responsibility that would, would crush me would, would crush the typical person. They're, they're just working flat out, like 90 hours a week, and they have thousands of people depending on them. And, you know, they have their money, and, and they have their status, and that's not nothing. But don't be thinking that there isn't a price to be paid for that. You know, they don't see their families, they're often divorced, they don't see their children grow up, and, and they don't have time off. Now, there are wealthy, what would you call, playboy types, I suppose, who live out the dreams of wealth of a foolish 14-year-old, but they're not that common, and you have to be careful of what you're jealous of because you don't really know what it is. And, and then the other thing that's kind of useful is to, well, to understand that you're different from everyone else. And, this is especially true as you get older. When, when you're 17 or 16 or something like that, comparing yourself to other people makes a certain amount of sense because 16 and 17-year-olds, they're kind of the same, you know, which is why when you go off to university, you can make friends so quickly. It's like, I'm, I'm just about 60. It takes me like 15 years to make a friend now, you know, um, as opposed to the two months that it took when I was 17. Um, you're, you're quite different from other people, and you shouldn't be comparing yourself to them because they're not like you, you know? They, they don't have your family. 
They don't have your temperament. They don't have your troubles. They don't have your abilities. The only person that... The only, the only person that has those is you. And this is why one of the rules, I think it's rule four, is compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not to who someone else is today. And see, that's a game you can win because you could be a little better today than you were yesterday. And that's a good thing. You're a little better, that, that's a good thing. And, and you know, no doubt there are some things that you could improve. You know, if you, if you sit and meditate for any length of time about what you're not doing optimally, answers will spring to mind. You know, you could be getting up earlier, you could be, you could be, you could be watching YouTube less, unless they're my videos, in which case you could be watching them more. Um, anyways. <laughs> I can't believe I said that, actually. I actually can't believe I said that. <laughs> That's the entrepreneur side of you. But like, com com comparing yourself to who you are now, that's a game you can win. And like, I've seen this be effective in many, many cases. In my clinical practice, for example, it's like you take stock of where you are. You know, what your advantages are and what your disadvantages are. And then you start with a little humility on the path of incremental improvement. And, you know, incremental improvement compounds. And so you can get a long ways. And, and then it's, you see, because trajectory in some sense is more important than position for, for human beings. I mean, if you're starving to death and, and, and deal, that's not the situation that I'm describing. But, you know, if you've got the bare necessities of life and so you're not, you're not surrounded by absolute privation. What you really want is to see that you're on an uphill path, you know, something that's got the right slope and, and, and you can start anywhere on that path and you, you can improve half a percent a day or a quarter of a percent a day and you think, well, that's not very much. It's like, it's a hundred percent. If it's a quarter percent a day, it's a hundred percent in four years and that doesn't count compounding you know, which means it's yep. actually going to happen a lot faster. So and that's duplicatable. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. It's oh. not just uh, applicable to the most talented person or the least No, I, I Anybody think, can I do think that. that the possibility that you can make yourself slightly better on a continual basis is, I think that's something that's accessible to everyone. I, I think that's equivalent to leading a virtuous life. And, you know, I talked about the terrible catastrophe in some sense of differences in intelligence and differences in conscientiousness and so forth and the, the downside of the meritocracy. But there is something to be said for virtue and truth, you know, and, and that is one thing, another thing that I've noticed about people who've been phenomenally successful is that they really do, they really do everything they can to live a truthful life. And that, you can get a bloody long ways by being honest. It's really something and so, you know what, uh, um, one of the things I want, he's talking about you never know what people are going through. Myself, Marvin, and Jordan were speaking backstage. And, uh, you know, he's been not as active recently as possible with media because of what your uh, personal life, what your wife is going through health-wise. And he still kept his commitment to go, uh, come out. He has so much respect for someone like Jordan Peterson to still keep his commitment. And that's tough to do. It's your wife. So let's make some noise for Jordan Peterson. 
Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David, and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.